welcome to this post Tisha B'Av fast day edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am Jake Novak, speaking to you again on this Monday, July twenty third. Um, boy, you know the the fast day that really really challenges a lot of people who are very very involved in the day to day news in Israel. Really has to be Tisha B'Av, right? I mean that's the that's the one where you say to yourself, well, yes, we're mourning the loss of the two holy temples on the same day, uh, same day in the month. But at the same time, you know, there's Jewish sovereignty again in the land of Israel. And so much of the Tisha B'Av narrative and so much of the Tisha B'Av mourning is about the loss of that. So you have it back. Um, and I, again, I, I'm not a rabbi, nor am I attempting to play one on the radio. Um, just summarizing what a lot of people believe is that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion of this since the creation of the State of Israel about whether or not Tisha B'Av still has the same meaning, whether or not we should still um, fast, things like that. And of course, the consent, the, <laughs> I really haven't met any legitimate rabbi who doesn't think that Tisha B'Av is still a fast day, so I'm giving sort of a spoiler alert there. But uh, go up and check it out online and, and, and find out some of the reasonings why it's still a fast day, why it's still a tragic day for the Jewish people. Um, a couple of you know little narratives that I can throw in there just really really quickly that don't have anything to do with Jewish sovereignty or the temples being destroyed. That is, there's a, there's a rabbinic tradition that the day the spies came back and ten out of the twelve of them lied and over exaggerated and made a big deal out of things. Boy, does the Torah understand Jewish people, right? I mean, <laughs> it's kind of like what happens when you go to a kosher restaurant. But anyway, uh, when ten of the twelve spies lied and the whole people of Israel in the desert start mourning and going nuts, the rabbinic teaching is that God said, you know, you cried over nothing on this night. From now on, you'll have something real to cry about. And that's uh, apparently that happened on Tisha B'Av also. So that's just one answer as to why it's still a fast day. But um, anyway, go into that's really interesting. The reason why Israel, of course, always on my mind, but Israel's been on my mind a lot lately. So much, even for it by Israel standards, so much news coming out of Israel now that it's hard to keep up. And what I like to, to do sometimes is present not necessarily a counterintuitive or different from the narrative type of explanation for things, but an additional bit of wisdom or wisdom may not be the, the best word, but an additional bit of information as to why things are, are going in a certain way, not only in Israel, but in the entire Middle, Middle East. And, you know, I'm seeing a lot of that happen. There's been a huge change in Israel, in the Middle East, and also for Russia and the United States because of one letter and two numbers. That letter is F, and the two numbers are, F, are 35. Of course, I'm talking about the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. It's got a fancy name, but what the F-35 is, is a stealth jet fighter. Now, many of you listening have known for the last 30 years or so, a little bit more than 30 years, about the stealth bomber. The stealth bomber is that thing that looks like a, um, an arrowhead, Black arrowhead flies through the air. You can hardly hear it. Doesn't make a lot of noise. Can't be detected by the radar. And that's been a game changer for the United States for a long time since it really first went into commission. You know, there's, there's arguments about when it first really started being used, but, but 1987, 88, 89, those are the kinds of years where you start seeing the, you know, the, the stealth bomber. And it starts flying over Super Bowls and things like that in, in the early 90s. <laughs> So that's when you know you've really made it. When, you, when you're an American jet that flies over the Super Bowl, then you know you've made it as a, as a weapon of war. Um, anyway, what is a game changer, though, but the thing about bombers is they don't fly at hypersonic speed, right? They're not super fast. Can't be. You can't really 
accurately drop bombs if you're flying that fast. And they are still susceptible to being attacked by other jets. You know, a jet fighter can go up and, and take out a bomber. Now, the great thing about the stealth bomber is that it can't be seen by radar, so there's not a lot of advance notice. It's not like jets can scramble and get there. So that's what makes it a, a great weapon. But still, after a while, it, it will show its hand, especially if it's already dropped some ordnance. And jets can see it and then attack it. Jets are faster, more nimble, and can do a lot of crazy things. So what Lockheed Martin attempted to do with the F-35, a long-standing project that they've been investing billions and billions of dollars in over the years, is to make a jet fighter that could have stealth technology as well, also be almost invisible or completely invisible to radar. And they were able to do that with the F-35. Now, for those of you who've been following the story of the F-35, and I get this all the time from people, and they're right. They talk about, well, this has been, haven't been there problems? Isn't there problems with the F-35? And they'll go on about that, not really being specific. And of course, there's problems with any new weapon system or jet system. But the problem, in quotation marks, that you have with the F-35 really isn't so much a technical issue. Thank God, because we have a lot of really good pilots in those F-35s right now. The problem has been the price. The prices are very, very expensive for the F-35. And it, that is the problem. For all the nations of the world, even the developed nations who are dealing with debt, as you know, the United States dealing with about $21 trillion in debt. This is a big issue, that, the, that this particular jet, which we're using to replace our existing jet fleet of F-16s over a period of time, is so expensive. So very expensive. And Lockheed Martin's trying to work on that with the United States. The, there's a handshake deal now that just came out last week, handshake deal between the Pentagon and Lockheed Martin that will get the price of each individual jet down to $80 million dollars which obviously sounds like a total fortune, but under $100 million for a jet like that is actually a pretty good deal. Um, I hope we do get to the $80 million price tag. I'm a little bit suspicious that that won't happen, but hey, if we get to $80 million per unit on these F-35s, that'll be great. So the F-35, though, has been a huge game changer in the Middle East because one of the first countries, really the first country other than the United States, to get an F-35 and to really work with one, of course, was Israel. And the Israelis don't just take the F-35 and slap their insignia and, and, and the Jewish star on it and fly it. They made many modifications to it to work in their region and to work for what they needed it to do. And I wrote about this not six months ago, not a year ago, not two years ago, but three years ago, I wrote a column about the F-35, which the Israelis version, they call the Adir. And for those of you who remember your Haggadah, Adir who, you know, the Adir who song that we sing? It's towards the end of Haggadah. And, you know, there's all kinds of different translations for Adir, like, you know, great, powerful. Adir means awesome, okay? And that's a perfect name for <laughs> a jet fighter that, that has stealth capacity. I call it the F, you know, the Israeli F-35, I call it the F-35 awesome, <laughs> the awesome jet. So the F-35 for the Israelis, they did something else with it, though. They, they, let's use another fun, fun term. They tricked it out. They jailbroke it, whatever you want to say. The F-35 had a certain amount of distance that it could go and still have its stealth capacity. Now, stealth isn't like, you know, the, the, the cloaking device on Star Trek that works forever. Stealth can only really be effective for a certain amount of time, certain amount of mileage. The Israelis effectively doubled the F-35 stealth capacity. So, you know, when, when Lockheed sent them over the specs and the Israelis were expecting this jet to come in a few years, they started to work on it and figuring out certain things that could be done both to the exterior of the jet and also to some of its software to double its stealth capacity. And as I wrote in this column three years ago about this, 
probably more than three years ago. I think it was the early summer of 2015 that I first wrote about the F-35. Um, I noticed that that doubling of the stealth capacity just so happened to make the F-35 capable of flying undetected all the way from Israel to Iran and back without needing to stop anywhere, without needing to refuel, and to continue to have its stealth capacity at least until it started to get close to Israeli airspace on the return trip. And of course, I noted the tremendous significance of that added technological power <laughs> given to the F-35. And there you have it. Uh, the Israelis got the F-35 uh, not long ago, finally got official delivery of it, but based on their own specifications. Again, the Israelis go over to the Lockheed Martin plant here in the United States and start to tell them the the uh, the modifications they want made to the, the, the number of jets that are coming over to them. And so Israel gets the F-35. Now, you've heard me speak many times on this program. Maybe you see me write online about how nothing that you discuss in the Middle East now over the last couple of years can really be put in its proper context. And you shouldn't trust anyone who doesn't mention this tremendous change in Saudi Arabia with the new crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who is effectively the king of, uh, already of Saudi Arabia. He really, his father really doesn't have much of a day-to-day -day run, running of the country. And his decision to really effectively work in an allied relationship with Israel has changed everything in the Middle East, and of course, because it also goes with his reforms internally in Saudi Arabia. Now, don't, don't get me wrong, Pr Crown Prince bin Salman is not, a dem is not interested in really that much democracy. Uh, I don't think he's a saint or a great humanitarian, but he is, of course, getting rid of, he expelled and got rid of the anti-American and anti-Semitic clerics in Saudi Arabia, is giving women more rights because he understands that if he wants to stand up to Iran and the $150 billion or so that the U.S. under President Obama kind of gave to them, he needed to strengthen his allies, get, get stronger allies, and did not have this quasi-relationship that Saudi Arabia was having with the United States over so many years. You know, you talk about 9-11 and the mistakes the United States made after 9-11, and I am not the biggest super critic of the war in Iraq. I am a critic of it, but I'm not a super critic of it. I understand that there were a lot of necessities there. But after 9-11, especially after, you know, just about all the hijackers and attackers were from Saudi Arabia, there were some people who said, instead of going after Iraq and some other groups in the Middle East, the United States should have sat down with Saudi Arabia and said, hey, you've got two choices. You either get rid of these terrorist elements, not only in your country, but throughout Sunni Islam, or good luck with the Iranians, because the Iranians want to kill you. We won't kill you, but we'll leave you alone with them. And a lot of people who presented that option were laughed at, were told that's not going to ever happen, yada, yada, yada. And maybe it wouldn't have happened in 2001. But what we've seen in the last two years or so from Mohammed bin Salman, who's only been the crown prince officially for less than two years, but it's been more than a year now, um, really makes it sound like maybe we could have. Maybe we could have sat down with the Saudis and said, listen, you're either our friends or you're our enemies. We would rather you be our friends, but you got to get rid of this terrorism, you know, because you guys are a big sponsor of terrorism, and so is Iran. Iran, we don't have any leverage with. With you, we have leverage. Let's do it. And now we can do that. So again, you've heard me talk many times on this program about how you cannot talk about the situation in the Middle East. You cannot talk about the situation about Israel and the Palestinians. None of those things can be discussed unless you understand that Saudi Arabia now is working in concert with Israel on just about everything. You have to understand that. 
But it's not always about politics. In this case, it's about this incredible weapon of war, the F-35. The F-35, this jet that can go undetected for as long as Israel can fly it back and forth to Iran, that whole thing, it is such a game changer for everyone. Now, you can understand how that's a game changer between Iran and Israel. But let me explain how it's also a game changer for Russia and the United States and just about everybody else. Something happened in March of this year, something happened that changed a lot of other things in the Middle East. And that is a report surfaced in the Kuwaiti news, news, which is controlled by Saudi Arabia. So let's call it Saudi controlled news. A report surfaced in March that indeed, as I said before, the Israelis actually took advantage of this stealth technology and flew two or three, we think three, F-35 jets to and from Israel over Tehran and back, and the Iranians had, had no idea it had happened. In other words, a completely successful stealth mission, just a flyover like that. Now, the problem is, is that you've got a real dispute within the military community about whether this really happened or not. A lot of military experts said, no, we really don't believe this happened. And other, other experts say, yes, we do believe it happened. Okay, well, depending on who you believe, this either happened or it didn't happen, right? But I have some of my own sources. Again, you're listening to Novak now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I have some of my own sources. I don't have sources within the Iranian government. I am not a spy master in that way, but I do have some sources, people I've known over the years who are either former or current CIA who are experts on Russia and are Russia analysts. And my top source for that has told me that just about most of the Kremlin, Kremlin believes this happened. The Russia believes that the Israelis have indeed successfully flown the F-35, a group of F-35 jets to and from Iran, uh, completely undetected by anybody. The Russians believe it happened. And you know what? That assessment that I'm getting from my source is quite believable because when you take a look at what has, Russia has done in the Middle East since March, it sure seems like they're reacting to this as if it's an established fact. So what are they doing? The Russians have been peddling for years their S-300 anti-aircraft missile system, telling all of their Middle Eastern clients that this is a great weapon system. You want to have this system. It shoots down enemy jets. It's a fantastic system. We'll either give it to you at a lower price or we'll give it to you for nothing in return for your loyalty, the whole nine yards. The F-35 and this purported mission has destroyed their product. The S-300 S might be a great weapon system, but it can't shoot down what it can't see. And if the Russians believe that the S-300 is, is basically useless against the F-35, then they no longer have a really great thing to offer the Irans and Syrias and Libyas of the world. They just don't. Now, they might come up with something else. It's not going to be oil, right? Because... Iran already has enough oil. It's not going to be wonderful tech investment like China is offering Middle Eastern countries because Russia doesn't have that either. They could. They've got a great engineering education system in Russia from the former Soviet Union, which is actually still in effect. And ask any Israeli who, who knows Russians who have come to Israel in recent decades, and they'll tell you that they're, they know their engineering. But instead of using that for something good, they just basically are about oil and weapons and, and a pathetic dictator, dictatorship from Vladimir Putin. But the Russians don't have that to offer anymore, which means that they really don't have much to barter with when it comes to the Irans and Syrias of the world. They have their own air force and they're willing to get involved to some, de some degree, but they're kind of getting tired of it. 
Now you have Russia more afraid of Israel and its Israeli capacity than ever before. Again, not directly. They don't think Israelis are going to deliberately attack any Russian assets. But they know that they could easily attack Russia's allies. And if Russia's allies are so susceptible to Israel, the allies are going to say, hey, Russia, what good are you doing us? If you can't protect us from the Israelis in the F-35. The F-35 Adir, the F-35 Awesome. So anyway, the Russians since March, since this reported sortie that the Israelis flew over Tehran and back, again, reported, because I'm still not 100% sure it really happened, but all I can tell you is that the Russians believe it happened, and a lot of the Middle East believes it happened, even though, again, huge controversy in the military world about whether it happened or not. But the Russians believe it happened, according to my sources, and I believe those sources because what Russia has done since March is started a slow divorce Slow divorce. It's not going to be a complete divorce. Maybe we'll call it a trial separation. I don't know what you want to call it, but Russia has started to step away a little bit from Iran and Syria ever since. Ever since. Because again, the Russians cannot guarantee those allies their safety with that S-300 missile system. And what's the point if they can't give them the safety that they want to have? The Russians now fear Israel and fear what they could do to those allies. And so they are moving away ever so slightly. This would be a good time for the United States and Israel to continue the pressure. What we're seeing from Bibi Netanyahu vis-a-vis -vis Putin is Netanyahu has been playing a game with Putin for a long time where he treats him very respectfully. He treats him in a friendly way. This is not a bet. This is good politics because I think there's no point in antagonizing the man. But I have no doubt in my mind that Netanyahu considers Putin a potential enemy, if not an existing enemy. And he's just trying to maintain and manage that situation as best he can. And right now, you have to think that the Israelis are getting the upper hand in this because the Russians absolutely are kowtowing to the Israelis vis-a-vis -vis Syria. The Russians have put pressure on the Iranians to get rid of their Hezbollah and the Iranian regular officers who are in Syria. That's a big win for Israel. For Russia to say, get out, that's a big win. And again... This isn't just because Netanyahu is shaking hands nicely. It's because of the F-35. The F-35 has made Russia very, very interested in reducing Iran's role in Syria and reducing their own role with Iran. That's very, very important. And again, it's not always about politics. You know, talk to people in Silicon Valley and they'll tell you about economic policy. And a lot of times they'll just laugh at it and say like, yeah, you can talk about economic policy all you want. I, we've created technology that has moved this economy more than any president or any tax ruler. And, and you know, very often they're right. And the same goes for the Middle East. You can talk about politics. We can talk about Mohammed bin Salman. And God knows I've talked about him quite a bit. And I do think that he's a very big impact. But it's hard to say that there's anything much bigger of an impact than the F-35. The F-35 to me is almost just almost as big an impact as Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. And by the way, they're also not completely unrelated. Mohammed bin Salman certainly knows about the capacity of the F-35, certainly knows what it can do, and that may have been a big reason why he extended a, an even warmer hand to Israel, an even warmer hand to the United States, beginning when he started to take real power in that country. So understand that, understand that really, really is how important that is. And again, so I'm going to add my, a little addendum to, you know, Jake Novak's rules of, of discussing Middle East policy and politics. Nothing can be discussed in the Middle East unless you throw it into the context of what's happened in Saudi Arabia under the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and his effective allied relationship with Israel, and nothing can be discussed about the Middle East and Middle Eastern politics without discussing the role of the F-35. You must discuss this. 
And this dream of a supersonic jet that can fly undetected for many, many miles and can attack before you even knew it was coming is real. And just in case you think it's a forever thing, just remember, though, the great rule of measures and countermeasures. There has never been a weapon, never been a weapon system that eventually hasn't been neutralized by the invention of a counter weapon, countermeasure measure to the weapon. That just happens. But it doesn't happen overnight. You know, for a long time, submarines or U-boats, as they call them, really were a game changer in worldwide warcraft. And it was a long time before minesweepers and anti-submarine warfare was really created to help neutralize submarines. But in, the, in those interim periods, which can sometimes last many years before some kind of countermeasure can be made against a very dominant weapon, things really change in the world. Really, really change in the world. The development of U-boat technology absolutely gave Germany the belief that it could successfully win World War I, and in some cases World War II, but especially World War I. And so a big reason why that war started is because of that technology. And it took a while for it to end, as you know. So it, someday somebody will make something that neutralizes the F-35 in some way or deadens somewhat its effect. But right now we are in a period where the F-35 has no answer. There is no answer to a jet fighter that can fly with stealth capacity. The Russians don't have anything like it. The Chinese don't have anything else like it. And not only do the Israelis have it, thanks to the United States and the partnership with Lockheed Martin, the creator of the F-35, but the Israelis have made it better. And the great benefit that the United States gets from weapon systems that they sell the Israelis is that the Israelis just don't take them and use them and give the money to the United States. You know, a huge amount of this so-called foreign aid to Israel is not really foreign aid. It's money that the United States basically lends Israel. And Israel, in return, gives it back to the United States through its payments to U.S. defense contractors. It's kind of, Israel's kind of acting like a clearinghouse between the government and its own defense contractors. And that's another discussion for another show. For any time you hear someone talk about all the foreign aid to Israel, it's really not so much foreign aid as it is a defense partnership. Get into that another time. But the point is, Israel doesn't just transfer the money back to the United States, it also improves the American weaponry with its own technology. And then, of course, the United States improves it, too. And it's, it's, it's a great partnership. The F-35's capacity and its value and its effective cost has been, you know, all been changed by what Israel has done. And again, if, if you want to see a little bit more detail on this, you can look up Jake Novak, F-35. I wrote about it in 2015. All of these things have come to pass. All of these things have come to pass. And the F-35 is this incredible game changer in the Middle East. Another game changer in the Middle East, which is coming out in the news today, and again, you're listening to Novak now here on the Nahum Siegel Network. Interesting events today in Israel. A, a, a missile that was fired from Syria was probably a missile fired in the civil war. In other words, it wasn't targeted towards Israel. It was probably something that was fired by the Syrian government against Syrian rebel uh, uh, positions. But it was too close to the Golan Heights. It was too close to northern Israel for Israel to take any chances. And so they enacted and used the, um, and used the David Sling missile system. This is a, not the Iron Dome. This is a different level of missile defense that Israel has used, also in partnership with, the United, with a United States defense company. In this case, it's Raytheon. In this case, it's Raytheon. And the Israelis intercepted and neutralized a Syrian missile earlier today. Um, 
north of Israel, obviously, in Syria. I, I think that in retrospect, they're going to find out that it was not aimed towards Israel, but it was just too darn close to take any chances. And again, this is how Israel has established its, its effective voice in the Syrian situation in a couple of ways. One of them is, of course, they're not going to apologize to anyone for using their missile defense against missiles that are launched too darn close to the Israeli uh, mainland, uh, Israel proper. Second, Russia is being very compliant with the Israelis right now. The Russians don't want to engage accidentally, don't want to have any of their jets or any of their people injured because they got too close to Israel and Israel couldn't decide which, you know, whose side they were on. And so Putin has been very compliant there. You know, for all this talk that he's some kind of puppet master, uh, Putin is running, running scared in some parts of, in some parts of the world, and that this is one of them. So Israel's really effectively doing that with the weapons. Now, of course, all the headlines today are going to be about the evacuation mission that the Israeli army conducted with the so-called white hat rescuers, white helmet rescuers in the Syrian area and getting them out of a bad situation. These are people who rescue and take care of refugees, which of course Syria has been the world's number one epicenter of refugee refugees for years and years now. And these are people who do this and they got really caught in between Syrian army positions and Syrian rebel positions and ISIS and the whole thing. And they were really, really in danger. These people who carry out this kind of rescue work or aid work for refugees as the Israelis came in, rescued them, rescued them, rescued the rescuers and got them to Jordan overnight. And I understand why that's the headline all day. And that's a very interesting story. Um, it's not a cut and dry story as well, because not all of these rescue groups are friendly to Israel, to say the least. If you think about UN peacekeepers who we know have been documented to sort of sit on the sidelines and smoke cigarettes as Israelis are being attacked. These aren't the same people as those, though, so we'll have to see. But the point is that that's where all the headlines are going to be today, and I understand that. But a big headline today should also be this David Sling thing, because again, like the F-35, David Sling and Iron Dome, these weapon systems are just as important as the politics, just as important as the humanitarian stuff. In, in a sense, I'm not talking about how you know, important in, in a moral sense. I'm talking about important in understanding the situation in the Middle East. The more Israeli weapon systems, or Israeli, in these cases, both Israel and American weapon systems, because these are joint manufactured programs, the F-35, the F-35 Adir, which is a joint uh, project between Israel and Lockheed Martin from the United States, and David Sling, which is a joint project between Raphael in Israel and Raytheon in the United States, are both superior weapon systems, dominant weapon systems in their class, that are changing the entire way things are, look, are looking in the Middle East. In my opinion, and I think in most decent people's opinion, for the better. The F-35 now has Iran scared, has Russia scared, has Saudi Arabia more than ever looking to partner with Israel, and has everyone sort of realizing that, you know what? If the Israelis can fly missions all over the Middle East undetected, without any fear of, 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 of any need to refuel or any kinds of fears of being shot down relatively, obviously there's always a risk at any military mission, don't get me wrong, but without, with reduced fears of those things, then that changes everything. Then maybe we don't buy the S-300 from the Russians. Maybe we don't talk so tough about what we're going to do to Israel when we know that they can take us out without us even knowing. And the David Sling, like the Iron Dome, has changed the whole discussion of where Israel is vulnerable and where it isn't. And those are very, very important things. These are weapon systems. These are weapon systems. Now, again, the weapon systems come from the politics. I get it. It's not like the politicians don't make a choice here. 
And if you're really, really intent on undermining Israel, which is what so many people are doing, they go from the political end. In other words, they'll, they'll start lobbying politicians not to make these deals. Don't, don't get into a partnership with Raphael. Don't get into a partnership on the F-35. Don't be so friendly to Israel. I mean, good luck with that, because what we've seen, even with the Obama administration, even with administrations that aren't as friendly to Israel, these kinds of programs work. Because there's a great financial, great, great financial incentive to working with the Israelis who will basically end up refunding a lot of the costs of the weapon and, of course, also improving the weapon as they are doing with the F-35 and certainly are doing with these anti-missile systems. So that's what we're seeing in the Middle East. And I just, if there's one thing I hope you come away with from this edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network, if there's one thing I hope you come away with. I hope you come away with an understanding that it isn't just politics. Politics in the Middle East, the theocracy in the Middle East, religion, all those things play a role. Of course they play a role. But don't overlook the technology, just like we shouldn't overlook the technological advances that have a huge effect on our economy and often have a bigger effect than a policy or a tax cut or anything else like that. Same thing here in the Middle East. Yes, there are political forces that have brought Israel and Saudi Arabia together. There are political forces that have frightened some of Israel's enemies or emboldened them. But don't forget the technology, and in this case, the weapons technology. The F-35 is a major game changer in the Middle East. So far, and again, a countermeasure will be invented one day, but until that countermeasure is made, the F-35 is a positive game changer in the Middle East. This has been Jake Novak. I'll speak to you again next week. Mm -hmm.